Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihil kareem amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing our exploration of Shahab Ahmad, what is Islam? We are now on the fourth question, which is on page 32. Okay. The fourth question. When the most widely, widely copied, widely circulated, widely read, widely memorized, widely recited, widely invoked, and widely proverbialized book of poetry in Islamic history, a book that came to the regarded as configuring and exemplifying ideals of self-conception and modes and mechanisms of self-expression, and the largest part of the Islamic world for half a millennium, takes as its definitive themes the ambiguous exploration of wine drinking and often homoerotic love, as well as a disparaging attitude to observant ritual piety. Is that canonical work and the ethos it epitomizes Islamic? Okay. So, so this is one of the big, big questions uh, in terms of defining what is Islamic. So... If we said on the surface, you know, someone who is speaking about wine drinking, and then on top of this, this is something a lot of Muslims are not aware of, this, you know, what in our language is homoerotic love. How can that be possibly Islamic? Yet, it is a big part of, uh, as he's saying, the most widely, you know, this poem that is the most widely copied, widely circulated, widely read, widely memorized, widely recited, widely invoked, widely proverbialized. And so... Uh, what that also is speaking of is this bigger issue that, okay, what, what is the importance of the acts of ritual? So in textbook Sunni Islam, ritual is where you begin. So a lot of times people say, you know, I don't feel anything when I pray. The fact that you're making your prayers is already a big step in terms of spirituality because it's a step of obedience. That's a big part of, of spirituality. You may not feel anything. That's a different issue. Right, But then you'll have some people for whom that just doesn't work. right? And they have to almost try to connect to Allah in a completely different way. And so this is what you find in a lot of this poetry. This is what a lot of the Sufis are accused of. And so there's a couple different types of Sufis. There's the Orthodox Sufis, which begin with your acts of worship. And then there's the other ones, sometimes they're called drunken Sufis, that focus more on getting intoxicated with, with love of Allah. So, okay, let's continue. I refer, of course, to the Divan complete poems of Shamsuddin Muhammad Hafiz of Shiraz, um, 1320 to 1390. The Divan of Hafiz was, in the period between the 15th and the late 19th centuries, a pervasive poetical, conceptual, and lexical presence in the discourse of educated Muslims in the vast geographical region extending from the Balkans through Anatolia, Iran and Central Asia, down and across Afghanistan and North India to the Bay of Bengal, that was home to the absolute demographic majority of Muslims on the planet, the historical constitution of which has already been noted above with regard to the teaching in madrasas of the basic philosophical theological handbook, the Hidayat al-Hikmah. Oh, to this temporal geographical entity, I will henceforth refer as the Balkans to Bengal complex. The Divan of Hafiz consists of about 500 ghazals in Persian. The ghazal being a poem written in rhyming couplets in the voice of a lover on the theme of loving an impossibly beautiful and habitually unattainable beloved. Okay. So one point he's mentioning is that in this stretch that he calls the Balkans to Bengal, 
um, this big stretch where the, where the absolute majority population is Muslim, far and away the majority population. Um, you have this, this poem, this divan of Hafiz, that is widely read and circulated, and it's a collection of ghazals, and as he mentions, that these are all uh, their love poetry. Okay, continue. The performative mise-en-scene for the ghazal is a drinking assembly of the poet's social peers where the shared individual experience of loving is configured in and expressed by the consumption of wine as a definitive medium for the intoxication. That is, deepening and heightening and expanding of the physical and imaginal senses. Mm -hmm. so, so one question becomes, is, is the wine drinking, is it actual drinking of booze or is it metaphor, metaphor for intoxication? I mean, this even in contemporary Kuali music, this is common. Like, you know, there's a famous, uh, famous Kuali performed by Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan, where the first line is, you know, ek sharab, uh, ek sharab ki botel hai. Or So in a bottle of wine is, is the, the following. And, and so, uh, so drinking of wine is haram, yet it is the metaphor for intoxication with the divine. The ghazal became the preeminent literary form of self-construction self and self-articulation. The literary being a discourse that is socially valorized as being rhetorically worked, experientially charged and imaginally invested for the purpose of creating, retaining, and communicating social and existential meaning. The ghazal played this function most especially in societies of Muslims speaking Persian, different types of Turkish, and Urdu in the world of the Balkans to Bengal complex. Hafiz being recognized as the most celebrated exemplar of this highly inter-elusive inter-referential and intertextual discourse. It is most telling that the two most important commentaries on Hafiz were composed in the middle of the historical age of the Balkans to Bengal complex by two com contemporaries from the distant geographical poles of the region. Ahmed Sudi of Sarajevo um, around 1598 and Abul-i Hassan Khatami of Lahore, 1670. Mm -hmm. So this Balkans to Bengal complex, what is he essentially talking about? He's talking about the non-Arab world, right? And then another region would be Southeast Asia, Polynesia, right? Um, or East Asia, I don't know if he'd include China as part of, part of East or Southeast Asia. But you have the Arab world, which would be essentially North Africa into the Middle East. You have the African world, which is Sub-Saharan Africa. And then here he's, he has this Balkans to Bengal complex, um, which is also the stretch that the Ottomans and the Mughals uh, ruled over. And this is also interesting that you find uh, Hafiz is so, so read that he's, he's studied and written about in the Balkans, Sarajevo, which is Bosnia, and then all the way in Lahore, which is modern-day Pakistan, the Indian subcontinent. And that's how widely read he is. The centrality of the Divan of Hafiz to the constitution of a paradigm of identity for Muslims in the world of the Balkans to Bengal complex, which, as I shall argue towards the end of this chapter, is a historically dominant paradigm of the self-construction and self-articulation of Muslims, that is, the centrality of the Divan of Hafiz to the historical being of Muslims, runs no risk of overstatement, yet its significance is rarely stated in these terms. 
In a recent attempt to set the record straight, Leonard Lewison uh, rightly refers to the Hafizocentrism of Persianite civilization, by which he means all the Persianite civilizations of Islamdom, Ottoman Turkey, Safavid and Qajar Persia, Timurid Central Asia, and Mughal India, have for the past five centuries been Hafizocentric as well. Up to the 1950s, Muslim children in Iran and Afghanistan and India were taught first to memorize the Quran and secondly to commit the poetry of Hafiz to heart, thus absorbing in their grammar school curriculum the sacred and revealed Book of Islam alongside the verses of the inspired tongue of the invisible. From Istanbul to Lahore, from the Persian Gulf to the thithermost Transoxiana, for some five centuries, the Book of Islam, the Qur'an, has in this fashion shared pride of place beside Hafiz's divan. So what do you think about that, that Hafiz is read that much that even children are memorizing it? It's amazing. It reminds me of my mom and dad. They all know a lot of his poems. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you've seen it right, uh, right before your eyes. Yeah. Okay, let's continue. Hafizian discourse regards itself squarely as falling under the phenomenal dome of the Muhammadan revelation. Hafiz himself was an accomplished student of the commentary on the Qur'an most widely taught in madrasas throughout the Balkans to Bengal complex. The Kashash, Kashaf. The Kashaf of the Khwarazmian <laughs> Mutazili rationalist Jar Allah al-Zamakhshari. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that was 11.44. And declared of himself, No Qur'an scholar beneath the prayer niche dome of the heavens can ever know the blessing I have had from the wealth of the Qur'an. Okay, so among the, the major commentaries of the Qur'an, Zamakhshari, so he's a Mu'tazila. Mu'tazila were these Greekish thinkers. And their commentaries were very heavily focused on language and use of language, use of interpretation of language linguistics. And so... This is uh, also what Hafiz is studying, and this is taught in, in madrasas all across the world. The word I am translating here as Qur'an scholar is, of course, Hafiz, hence the double en- entendre. No, what is it? <laughs> double entendre? <laughs> no Hafiz beneath the Peronish dome of the heavens can ever know. Hafiz is here presenting himself alongside all the other Hafiz's that is, alongside every other Muslim who has ever sought meaningfully to engage with the wealth of the Qur'an. Indeed, Hafiz's poetry was itself conceived of by the society of his readers in none other than revelatory terms. It was the Olympian personage of Nuruddin Jami of Herat, 1492, philosopher, poet, and preeminent translator of the cosmology of Ibn Arabi into Persian verse, who bestowed upon Hafiz the appellation by which he would hence be known, Lisan al-Ghaib, the tongue of the unseen. As a prefatory inscription to a royally commissioned scholarly edition of the Divan of Hafiz prepared in Herat in 1501, proclaims, This treasure house of meanings, devoid of imperfection, is the empress from that book of no doubt, Famous in the world of the emanation of the Holy Spirit, spoken upon the tongues as the tongue of the unseen. Okay, so basically what are we saying? That the uh, Hafiz's poetry, his divan, is the product of the Qur'an. So the Qur'an is the source, and one of its children, so to speak, is, is Hafiz's divan. 
That's what my parents say, especially when um, a lot of people nowadays, they... Um, I mean, Rumi has been whitewashed, especially here. Mm. But that's one thing that they talk about, that there's so much depth to Rumi's um, poetry that it's not just about love the way that we know it, mm. but it's like about various levels of love, mm-hmm. especially like spiritual love, like mm-hmm. with God. Mm-hmm. So you should be happy you're... Your homeland is getting all kinds of attention. Else. I know, yeah. finally, positive attention. Yeah. What is the Book of No Doubt? Is that, um... Quran. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, the Book of No Doubt, Sahifa illa raib, to which the Divan of Hafiz is here likened is, of course, the Quran itself. Oh. And the words of its famous self-affirmation, Kitab la raiba fihi, a book wherein is no doubt. The Quranic phrase I have translated here as Holy Spirit, Ruh al-Quds, more accurately rendered as Spirit of the Blessed, or Spirit of the Pure, is identified by the Quran as the agent of divine revelation to Muhammad, and thus generally construed as the angel Jibreel, Gabriel. Thus the Divan of Hafiz is here conceived of as a simulacrum, to the book of God sent down upon Muhammad. So think of it, um, if we don't think of it as a child of the Quran, think of it as a sort of reflection of the Quran. Okay. Thus, the Divan of Hafiz is here... Oh, I just read yeah. that. Um, the social prevalence of this notion of Hafiz is evident not only in the fact that another famous 16th century introduction to his Divan invokes the Quran's famous description of the divine revelation to Muhammad to say that Hafiz cast upon the horizons and within the souls the echo of the essence of he does not speak of his own desire. Truly, it is none other than an inspiration inspired. But also in the utter ubiquity in the historical societies of Balkans to Bengal down to the 20th century of the everyday oracular practice of using copies of the Divan of Hafiz for divination, Fal, that is, for what one, what one might call quotidian prophecy, an operation initiated by the recitation by the augury seeker of either or both of the Fatiha, opening Fatiha, opening chapter of the Qur'an, and the Durud Sharif, invocation of divine blessings upon the Prophet, accompanied by the entreaty, O Hafiz of Shiraz, you the privy company of every secret, I seek but one secret, you are the unveiler of all secrets. So yeah, look at look at the status that uh, that Hafiz is being given. Uh, someone who might be making du'a in our language will be doing uh, reciting al-Fatiha, then durud sharif, you know, Allahumma salli ala Muhammad, all the way to the end of it, and then invoking Hafiz. That's how huge uh, his uh, influence and his esteem was, and you know, for for half a millennium. Anyone would do this in the Balkans? This is all across the all across that, oh. that region. So was it translated in different languages as well for all yeah. The people? Yeah. I mean for for much of Islamic history, Persian was the often the, the dominant language of high culture. So Arabic oh, was okay. the dominant language until about seven hundred fifty, eight hundred, and then you see the rise of Persian, and Persian is is the dominant language for all the way until maybe the 1600s. I mean, there's Ottoman Turkish, which is oh. there, and then African religions and such, but Persian was still everywhere. Okay. Engaging Ottoman work, the Razname, Book of Secrets, of Kefeli Hussein, 1601, 
which is a collection of anecdotes about the real-life contemporaries of its author in which almost every story ends in the protagonist turning often in a crisis to a copy of the Divan of Hafiz to obtain a divinatory pro prophecy, shows clearly not only that to know Hafiz was a sine qua non, yeah. uh, for an Ottoman Muslim gentleman to function in society, but also indicates the widespread circulation of copies of the work. In these real-life 16th century narratives, a copy of the Divan seems always to be ready to hand on a nearby table or wall niche or in someone's coat pocket, as well as the special powers invested in the book by its readers, reciters, and rehearsers. Hafiz's poetry is indeed, as Daryush Shaygan so eloquently put it, the intimate interlocutor of every heart in distress of every soul that is seized by mystical ex exaltation, every listener seems to find it in an answer to his question, to find in it an answer to his question. Every reader thinks he is discovering an allusion to his desire. Every, ma every man finds in him a sympathetic interlocutor capable of understanding his secret, hence this connivance of the poet with all his readers. So... So, so we're saying that, again, Hafiz's reputation or his rank is so high that people looking for answers would even open up Hafiz to see if they can find answers to the world. Right? That's the status that's given. Uh, in many circles today, that would be considered to be blasphemy. And the overall question that we're going to see at the end of this section, he's going to ask, Shahab Ahmed's going to ask, okay, how is this Islamic? Not in the sense of, you know, prove to me this is Islamic, but, you know, what makes this Islamic? Now, the definitive conceptual, experiential, and expressive register of the Hafizian Ghazal, which Shaygan has said, the humanitas of Islam, is ambiguity. Ability to be understood in more than one way. And ambivalence, the coexistence in one person or one work of contradictory emotions or attitudes towards the same object or situation. Mm -hmm. So this is also uh, a very interesting point. Um, what is part of the essence of, of, uh, of Islam or the human aspect of Islam? Ambiguity and ambivalence. So ability to be understood in more than one way. And what does that give? That gives flexibility. And then ambivalence, coexistence in one person of one work, contradictory emotions. And so at the same time, you could be, you know, you can have multiple feelings. And so we're basically saying it's also appreciating that the human being is complex. <coughs> Love in the Ghazal is that one's carnal love, as well as chaste platonic love, and love for of the divine. The beloved is at once the tantalizing, fleshy object of physical desire, as well a beautiful youth who manifests and thus bears witness, Shahid, by virtue of his or her chaste beauty to the beauty of the divine, or is simply God himself. The wine of the Ghazal is at once the red liquid imbibed in metal cups by boon, com boon companions in their social gatherings, Majlis Mahfil, where the Ghazal is recited both in liter literary conceit and in actual social practice, and or an image that conveys the experience of intoxication with the divine. The socially pervasive language of the Ghazal a language in which people thought about and fashioned their experience of the self and in which they spoke to each other about the individual and collective self is thus a language that expresses not merely a theoretical tension between legal and non-legal norms, 
but the very ethos of a lived re reality comprising a plurality of evidently contradictory meanings in life. So, so this is one of the interesting things. Uh, uh, I've had students over the years who said that they became Muslim because uh, Islam in general and the Quran in particular speaks not as much of ideals as much as the real behavior of a person. And what these poetry, what this poetry is also describing is that you as a person, you're very complex, right? You're not just this one dimension. And then on top of that, the definitions, he gives the example that, okay, the wine drinking at one level can mean actual, you know, drinking of booze, or it could mean the intoxication with the divine. Likewise, love could be carnal love, it could be platonic love, it could be love for the divine, uh, all these different things at the same time. Hafizian discourse and the prodigious historical community that engaged with it interrogates in and from the communal social space of the Ghazal the world views and values of the jurist, Faqih, and the preacher, Vais, yeah. and the aesthetic Sufi, Zahid, and asserts the norms and values of the Ghazal. The following is a smattering of famously representative couplets that convey those norms and values. Hafiz, drink wine, live in non-conforming libertinage, rendi. Be happy, but do not, like others, make the Qur'an a snare of deception. If the jurist admonishes you against love play, give him a bowl of wine, tell him to loosen his mind. Ascetic, since from your prayers nothing is forthcoming, I shall with nightly drunkenness and secret lovers talk. Since the wine-bearer was a moon-faced beloved and a keeper of secrets, Hafiz drank from the wine cup, and so did the sheikh and the jurist. Around the sacred house of the wine vat, Hafiz, if he does not die, head over heels will go. Okay, so this is, again, this is a passage that can look um, like complete blasphemy. You know, Hafiz, drink wine, live in non-conformity, libertinage, which is basically like living like a hedonist, you know, fulfilling all your appetites. Be happy, but do not, like others, make the Qur'an a snare of deception. So be honest uh, uh, about the Qur'an. And then if the jurist is telling you not to do this, give him a bowl of wine, okay, and tell him to loosen up, okay. And to the Zahid, the ascetic, okay, um, your prayers are worthless, okay, and I'm getting more by getting drunk and being with lovers, okay. And since the wine bearer was a moon-faced beloved, <coughs> a keeper of secrets, um, what does that mean? The wine bearer being a moon-faced beloved, here the wine bearer is the prophet, peace be upon him. Oh. Okay. Uh, and a keeper of secrets, Hafiz drank from the wine cup, and so did the sheikh and the jurist. And meaning all of this is coming from the prophet, peace be upon him. Oh. This intoxication, so intoxication with the divine, is coming from, from the Prophet, peace be upon him. Around the sacred house of the wine vat, uh, so that's the Kaaba, okay. Hafiz, if he does not die, head over heels, will go. So what is this also saying? That, okay, the jurist, if the jurist is focused only on the rules, he's missing the essence of, of the practice of life. Okay. Meaning, connection, intoxication with Allah. And then the ascetic, the Zahid, that person's prayers are focused on nothing, meaning because that person is just trying to restrict himself, and again, missing on the joy of life, which is again, 
the intoxication with Allah. Okay. Who said these couples? This, uh, this uh, actually, I don't know. Is it just from that time? Yeah, or let's see, uh, let me look real quickly. Uh, yeah, I don't see. Okay. Yeah. But they're just to describe... Yeah, it's like a, it's like a poem to Hafiz. Okay. Actually, no. It says it's from it's from, it's a ghazal from Divan. So Hafiz is speaking to himself. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The umbrella term given to the paradigmic ethos and aesthetics associated with Hafizian discourse, as well as with the composite discourse of other diverse pillars of the Balkans to Bengal Persian canon, such as Nizami, Saadi, Akhtar, Rumi, and Jami onto each of whom this ethical and aesthetical paradigm configures quite differently is the med- madhab of love. madhab ishq We say madhab ishq Yeah. Um, the word yeah, mad- it probably should have been madhab ishq yeah. 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 The word madhab or madhab means literally way of going. Expressed in this nomenclature is precisely that love is a way of going about being Muslim, a mode of being with God, of identifying, experiencing, and living with the values and meaning of divine truth. Earthly love, the love for human beauty, is metaphorical love, ishq majazi, and is the experiential meaning, and is the experiential means by which to come to know real true love, or love for and real truth. In the famous lines of Jami. Try even a hundred different things in this world. It is, it is love alone that will free you from yourself. Do not turn from love of a fair face, even if it be metaphorical. Majazi. Though it be not real. Hakiki. It is a preparatory. For if you do not first study A and B on a slate, how then will you take lessons in the Quran? It is said that a disciple went to a Sufi master that he might guide him upon his journey. The master said, if you have not yet set foot in the realm of love, go first become a lover, and only after that come back to us. For without having emptied the wine cup of the form, surat, you will not attain to you will not attain to taste the drought of meaning, mani. Do not though tarry over long with the figure, surat, but bring yourself swift across this bridge. Okay, so what does it seem to mean to you? Um I mean, basically, where he says, you first have to study A and B, like, you first have to know the alphabet before you actually read a book, especially the Quran, like, you Mm -hmm. need to know the basics, and the basics here is love, um, so first go figure out the form before you understand the meaning, but don't be stuck on the form, Mm -hmm. uh, make sure that you make it through that, so Mm -hmm. you get to the meaning. Yeah, and so, so the idea being here that, if you haven't experienced love, then you haven't lived life, right? And then if you haven't lived life, um, then the Qur'an for you is only going to be a set of ideals. It's not going to be a real book, mm-hmm. right? And this is something that's interesting in terms of the current crop of college students. Many of my college students are afraid to have relationships. And I'm not even talking about romantic relationships. I'm talking about friendships. Uh, on the one hand, they're saying, well, it's going to end after four years. On the other hand, they're afraid of pain. And a point I have to keep making is that's the stuff of life, right? Yeah. That you're going to have pain, but you're also going to have tremendous more joy and substantive relationships. It, as you can uh, develop that, then you'll have far more appreciation and benefit from the Quran.
However, the relationship between metaphorical and real true love is anything but a straightforward linear progression from one thing to another. Rather, as is the case with the relation between any metaphor and the meaning that the metaphor configures, the relationship is altogether more ambiguous, which is a point that will be taken up fully in part three of this book. In the conceptualization and practice of the Mezhebi-ishq, the beloved is at once both the external object form for metaphorical love and the source for the derivation of real meaning. Thus, in exemplifying one of the most famous and profound love affairs in the way and lore of the Mezhebi Ishq, Jalaluddin Rumi invokes his truth-transfiguring beloved, Shams Tabriz, thus, Shams Tabriz, your form, Surat, is beautiful, and in meaning, Mani, what a beautiful source. So, you know, like we say, beauty is only skin deep, so... Don't get too lost in the form. You want to see what, what is beneath that. And the ideal is beauty on the outside and beauty on the inside. So, so Islam on the outside, Islam on the inside. That the meaningful love of the Mazhabi Ishq encompassed and fused in ambiguity, both carnal and spiritual love, is summed up in the following couplets from one of the most famous ghazals of Rumi, in which the poet addresses his earthly beloved as follows. If anyone asks you about the Horus, show your cheek, say, like this. If anyone asks you about the moon, ascend to the roof, say, like this. If anyone is in search of a fairy, show your own face. If anyone speaks of the scent of musk, loosen your hair, say, like this. If anyone asks, how do the clouds reveal the moon, untie your shirt, knot by knot, say, like this. If anyone asks, how did Jesus raise the dead, kiss me on the lips and say, like this. Interesting. <laughs> In the celebrated example of the ambivalent condition of love as both carnal and ideal, as both majazi and haqiqi, the sensual kiss of Rumi's luminous, musky, bare-chested, paradisical lover upon the poet's lips is and is not the miraculous soul-resurrecting res- soul kiss of the Messiah himself. The f- okay. The philosophical foundations of the idea of the cosmological value of love are to be found already in Ibn Sina, who wrote in his Epistle on Love that love is a manifestation of essence and existence, meaning that love is a manifestation of God, essence and existence being consubstantial in God and Ibn Sina's conceptualization of him. The intrinsic and instrumental social and human value of love is plainly stated in a long chapter entitled On the Virtue of Love by Means of Which Societies Are Bound Together in the most widely read book of political thought and social ethics in the history of societies of Muslims, the Persian language ethics, akhlaq, of Nasiruddin Tusi, 1201-1274, is self-based on the chapter on love and friendship in the Arabic language, refinement of ethics, Tadhib al-Akhlaq, of Miskawe, 1030, which presents love as a definitive constituent of a shared Muslim identity and as a virtue superior even to justice. Okay, so so here we have the, the poetry of Rumi, where he is combined saying, um, you know, the, the love of a higher level is directly connected to the love of this world. And the operations of the world, all the different things that happen in the world, 
are directly connected to relationships. And then further we're saying that love is the essence of society, what holds society together. Okay. And then we have this line. The people of the virtuous city, although they are different from one part of the world to another, are in reality in concord, for their hearts are upright one towards the other, and are adorned with love one towards the other. In their close-knit affection, they are like a single individual. As the Shari giver, peace be upon him, says, Muslims are a single hand against all others, and are as one soul. The need for justice arises from the absence of love. For if love were to accrue between individuals, there would be no necessity for equity and impartiality. In this regard, the virtue of love over justice is obvious. Okay, so this is an interesting uh, observation. That here, justice is something you need in the absence of love. If you have love, then you don't need justice. And this is very interesting because in contemporary activism, meaning right now, in this moment in American history and activism, people say that love, that justice is the manifestation of love. And here he's saying justice is what you do in the absence of love. So if you have love, then you would be just? Then you would have forgiveness. Oh. And you would not be harming. Okay. So justice would not be needed. Exactly. Okay. That Muslims have conceived of love as more than mere emotion was well recognized half a century ago by Helmut Ritter, who wrote in a magnificent study on the significance and meaning of the concept and practice of love in the history of societies of Muslims. Okay, so this is another important point. That a lot of times uh, we confuse infatuation with love, that infatuation is essentially a type of emotion. But here we're saying it's something far bigger, far more substantial than that. There is a spiritual power which is suited above all other to promote the soul's, the soul's concentration on another being, to suppress and eliminate all other ties and interests, to make that being the center of one's feelings, and from within this emotionally laden center to dominate all aspects of life and to determine all expression in life. A power which is more effective than any other efforts at overcoming restraints and hindrances, which can traverse the distance of a day's travel in minutes and performs achievements of high aspiration where all other efforts fail. The power in question is love. It provides the mystic with assistance to attain his goal, closeness to God, and to achieve union with him. In the case of the lover, the intensity of feeling is stronger, the capacity for suffering and endurance is greater, the happiness of proximity is higher than the world-renouncing ascetic and the saint of actions who sees the purpose of, of his existence in acts of obedience. Love has its own laws and specific qualities of emotion which make it more than simply a means of intensifying other spiritual emotions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think even in our contemporary society, uh, we don't really have an appreciation of love, what it is and how it works. And... and we frame it um, as something that is very shallow, um, but we're saying it's an actual power. In the literature of the Madhab of Love, or Mazhab of Love, which is, of course, not limited to the works of the above listed authors, rather, it encompasses a vast textual corpus produced down the centuries in their par paradigmatical image and tenor. The worldview and life way that is lo human love for divine beauty manifests as earthly beauty is valorized as the paramount human sensation, sensibility, action, and condition. 
Love functions as an elevating experience for the realization, apprehension, and ex experience of the values and higher truth. It functions, in other words, as in the foregoing verses by Hafiz, as a mode of knowing, of valorizing, and meaning-making, and as a medium for the mobilization and incorporation of these meanings and values into a manner and ethos and critical principle of living by which by means of which societies are bound together. Okay, so the same, the same key point here. So this mazhab of love is what really holds everything together. And a point we've made in other classes is that one of the essences of Islam is connection. And one of the primary methods of connection is love. So love between people, love across society and such. When that love begins to disintegrate, then the society begins to disintegrate. There is still inadequate awareness and recognition of the central place of the idea and practice of love in the historical discourses and practices constructive and expressive of being Muslim. An important corrective is a massive recent work on the role of love in the history of discourses of Muslims that takes up where Ritter left off. The distinguished author William C. Chittick prefaced his opus with the statement, those familiar with the histories and literatures of the Islamic peoples know that love is so central to the overall ethos of the religion that if any word can sum up Islamic spirituality, by which I mean the very heart of the Quranic message, it should surely be love. I used to think that knowledge deserved this honor and that the orient Orientalist Franz Rosenthal had it right in the title of his book, Knowledge Triumphant. Now I think that love does a better job of conveying the nature of the quest for God that lies at the tradition's heart. So this is an interesting point. So, at one level, many would argue that the essence of Islam is knowledge. Uh, but then this other view is saying the essence of knowledge is, or the essence of Islam is love. So knowledge is essentially something that you acquire, something you develop, that helps you to get to know God. But love is essentially this intense search for God. And so, so some say that is the essence of the Qur'an. That kind of makes sense, because like, if you have love, then you're more interested in seeking more knowledge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I suggest, however, that rather than to draw a sharp distinguishing line between love and knowledge, it is more accurate to conceive of love as construed and practiced by the madhabi ishq precisely as a register or type of knowing. The experience of love is a learning experience, or an experience of learning, that teaches the lover how to identify value, um, i.e. what is valuable, and to, and to constitute the human being, both as individual and as society, accordingly in terms of those values. Some of us may find it a challenge to conceive of love as a rigorous or far-reaching principle for knowing, valorization, or meaning-making. It may, in this regard, be instructive to consider the argument of the, argument of the anthropologist Richard Schuder for the mobilization of the love-centered ethos of romanticism, romanticism as a mode for the practice of the scholarly field of cultural anthropology. The practical result of Romanticism's doctrine and reevaluation of beauty as the figure of truth, love as the realization of our veritable nature, language in general, and poetic language in particular, as the divine expressive instrument of the real, adventure, astonishment, and cultural anthropology as proper responses to the variety of 
inspiring manifestations of pure being in the world. For the aim of Romanticism is to is to revalue existence, not to de denigrate pure being, to dignify subjective experience, not to deny reality, to appreciate the imagination, not to disregard reason. Romanticism inclines toward an interest in those inspirations that take us beyond our senses to real places where even logic cannot go. Mm -hmm. So another way to think about love and here romanticism is that it's non-rational um, as opposed to irrational. Sometimes it's irrational, but it's non-rational and it aims higher. It aims higher than, than knowledge or, or logic. Because logic itself is a set of rules, meaning something to be logical has to has to make sense. Love doesn't have to make sense. Okay. The protagonists of the Mazhabi Ishq would agree. In the prolific literary discourses of the Mazhabi Ishq, the experiential and discursive registers of the spiritual and the physical are collapsed into each other in a synthetic, Sufi, philosophical, conceptual, and imaginal vocabulary that configures the registers of the literal and the metaphorical. A vocabulary of concepts and images so widespread in its usage as to be effectively, as Dick Davis ac acutely put it, a lingua franca, the conventional rhetoric of Persian poetry, what we may call its dialect. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is a nice way to put it, that, that love is the dialect of Persian poetry. The major works of this literature were, with the sole exception of the Quran itself, the most widely copied, and with the eventual spread of the technology in the, in the 19th century, widely printed, and widely consumed texts throughout this vast Bal Balkans to Bengal region. Collectively, they provided a language for thinking and reading and communicating and living, that is, for a way of going about madhab. The articulation, narration, celebration, recitation, transmission, performance, and exploration in the self and in society of meaning and value. These discourses and their accompanying practices express and embodied a mode of valorization, that is, of setting the values of things as positive or negative, and thus put forward a complex of values and meanings as norms, as what is expected or regarded as normal. For any Muslim to enter into the social, contextual, imaginal, and experiential space of the literary discourses of the Balkans to Bengal canon, that is, to recite a ghazal to oneself, or to be present in a majlis where one was recited, or to experience or imagine loving or wine-drinking in terms of the discursively pervasive vocabulary of the ghazal, was necessarily to engage with the normative values and meaning claims of the madhabi ish. Normative claims are claims to establishing a norm or standard. Now the word madhab, or mazhab, which is usually translated as school, is of course the term used to designate a madhab school of Islamic law. Thus, the Hanafi Mazhab, the Shafi Mazhab, the Maliki Mazhab, and the Hanbali Mazhab, and the Jafari Mazhab. And certainly, the practitioners of Mazhabi Ishq were all associated with one or another of these legal Mazhabs. Yet, alongside these legal Mazhabs, whose norms we might, by ingrained force or cognitive habit, be more readily inclined to call religious or Islamic, the Sufi philosophical, aesthetical, madhabi ishq posited its own prolific normative claims in society with love as the primary principle and value. Am <coughs> I too far? Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, we're almost done. Okay. How are these truth claims Islamic? 
Is this supposed to be on the one hand? Yeah. On the one hand, Omid Safi has noted that it is important to point out that these Sufis were not abrogating the established theological and legal schools, nor were they dismissing their rele relevance. In fact, many of the Sufis were themselves important members of these other schools as well. These Sufis of the path uh, of the path of love were presenting. We're not. Oh, we're. We're presenting not. We're pre yeah, <laughs> we're presenting not a new religion, but a fresh dynamic, and ever transforming understanding of themselves, the world around them, and the divine based primarily on love. So this is a really really important point, <coughs> that. It isn't necessarily the case that even though we're speaking of Mazhabi Ishq as its own school, it doesn't mean that they were bypassing these schools of law. For many of the Sufis, they were hardcore members of these schools of law, and they were adding a whole big dimension to it. Mm. On the other hand, on the other hand, whether or not the protagonists of the Mazhabi Ishq were dismissing the relevance of the legal schools, and if not dismissing, dismissing outright, many of them were, without doubt, meaningfully qualifying the relevance and scope of the truth claims of the legal schools, the question to be considered is precisely what the implications and consequences are for normative Islam of a discourse whose practitioners insistently argued for an understanding of themselves, the world around them, and the divine-based based primarily on love. What are the implications and consequences for normative Islam of a statement such as that with which Amir Hassan Sujzi of Delhi, 1254-1338, poet, Sufi, and compiler of one of the most famous books of Islam in South Asia, the Fawaid al-Fuad, comes to conclude his divan the work of the lover is the work of the heart. Those meanings are beyond belief, deen, and unbelief. Kufr. We will see in chapter 5 that this idea of meanings beyond belief and unbelief was an absolutely standard one, widely heard in the self-expression of Muslims in the literature of the Balkans to Bengal complex. J. Christoph Bergil, one of the most original and supple-minded scholars of the literary discourses of Muslims, says of Hafiz's poetry that on reading these verses, one gets the impression of facing something like a counter-religion. Now, Burgle does not say what he means by counter-religion, but if we understand the term in parallel with the well-established concept counter-culture, then we are talking about a mode of life deliberately deviating from established social practices, or the culture and lifestyle of, these, of those people who reject or oppose the dominant values of society, or a subculture whose values and norms of behavior deviate from those of mainstream society, often in opposition to mainstream cultural mores. My point, however, is that the self-evident historical commonplaceness and centrality of the Mezhebi Ishq and of Hafizian literature at the very heart of the mainstream that is moving with and as a part of the flow rather than counter to it, of the historical discourses, practices, valorizations, and self-constructions of Muslims make the characterization counter-religion highly unsatisfactory and fails entirely to help us conceptualize the coherence of contradictory norms in the lived religious reality of Muslims. Okay, so yeah, this last point sums it all up. That <coughs> the, the recurring theme in this whole section was about contradiction. 
And how is this uh, uh, Islamic? I mean, he'll discuss more in this next subsection. But the point is, what is it that makes all of this Islamic? Or how do we make sense of this being Islamic if it is contradicting other major aspects? Not just even talking about wine drinking, but just the approach to Islam. So what we saw with the philosophers is an approach by way of the mind. And what we're seeing by way of the Sufis is a holistic approach. And some Sufis, it's an approach by way of love. And so these are all different uh, approaches people have had historically in mass uh, in Islam. Any questions or thoughts? Mm. I'm probably tired from all the reading. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially because I'm fasting. Mm. My throat went dry. Um, I mean, I guess he's going to talk about it, but does it have to be contradictory? Can it all go together? Well, the point is that in practice it is contradictory. Right? I mean, the question of whether or not it can go together is a valid question. But the point is that um, if someone is speaking about wine drinking as wine drinking, then that is a contradiction. Right, okay. You know? Yeah. But if it's metaphorical, then that's... Then that's very different. Okay. Yeah. And is Rumi... Is that what's being talked about? How, like, when they talk about wine drinking, sometimes it is? Um, That's a debated point. Okay. So in terms of contemporary Qawwali singers, the big ones, it's generally assumed that the wine drinking is metaphorical. Mm. Right? But it probably was not always the case. Yeah. Well, the way my parents describe it, um, they also say that it's metaphorical. Yeah. Like with all of Rumi's. I mean, it's generally agreed upon that it is at least metaphorical. The question is, is it also literal? Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so let's stop here. What page is that? 46. Page 46. And we'll continue next time. Subhanakullahumma bihamdika. Nashadu illa ilaha illa anta. Nasdaq firuka wa natubi ilaiku akhirat da'wana. And alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.